turn your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 18, 1 Kings chapter 18, fence riders. If Moses is the number one Jewish hero, then Elijah is definitely a very close number two. Even today at a Jewish Passover meal, a glass of wine is set out in honor of Elijah. Casey shows up to proclaim and prepare the way of the Messiah. When a stranger in the Jewish world appears with some power and might with a word from God, they begin to ask the question, could this be, is this Elijah? Remember what they said about Jesus. They even wondered if he were Elijah. Who is this Elijah who captivates eight chapters of Kings? For the next three weeks, we'll be looking at the prophet Elijah, who he was and what he means for us today. Talk about unexpected company. Elijah drops right in the middle here in 1 Kings 17 without any forewarning. He comes out of thin air, and at the end, he will return into thin air, vanishing. So we catch Elijah right here, mid-career. No background information, but you need to know. Backgrounds do, make, do not make for good prophets. Neither do parents or lineage or PhDs. That's not what makes a prophet. A prophet is a man or a woman seized by the living word of God, is truth burning in their bones from God that makes him or her a prophet. They are those who see through the appearances to see the world as it really is. Elie Wiesel asked the question, who is a prophet? Someone who sees people as they are, but also as they ought to be. Someone who reflects his time, but also lives outside of time. A prophet is forever awake, forever alert. He is never indifferent, especially to injustice, restless, disquieting. He is forever waiting for a signal, a summons, a sleep. He hears voices and follows visions. His dreams do not belong to him. Often persecuted, always in anguish, and often alone. There is sometimes a theatrical aspect to him or to her. He seems to recite lines that were written by someone else, and yet those lines must penetrate his own soul. He must be invaded by God to be able to be authentically the prophet of God. A prophet is God's sounding board. Well, Elijah's that kind of person. He makes a sudden appearance on the stage of kings to reprimand Ahab, the awful king of Israel. A very, very wicked man. Well, someone said, a prophet is to a king like ants to a picnic. A prophet is to a king like ants to a picnic. I would say Elijah was more like a swarm of bees to Ahab. Well, it was his wife, Jezebel, who was problem number two. He had married her simply for the formation of a political alliance with 
Phoenicia. But like most women, I mean like a few women, she moved in and took over, took over Ahab's life. Like a newlywed bride rearranging her husband's bachelor pad, Jezebel rearranged worship in ancient Israel. She wanted everybody to worship her God, the Baal, the fertility God. She set up idols and temples here and idols and temples there, all to Baal. And worst of all, she began, she began a systematic execution, killing all of God's prophets. Now, Baal was the god of success, the god of rhythms and rain and sun and seasons. It's the religion of a full harvest. It's the religion of a house full of children. It was the god of life, of security and pleasure and plenty. It was a religion of success. If it works, do it. Or of self, if it serves me or meets my need, do it. Or sensuality, if it feels good, do it. We're still tempted to worship the Baal. Just the names have changed. Instead of weather, we worship Wall Street. We fall down before the idols of beauty and sensuality. And our self-centeredness today stings to heaven even more than it did in the day of Elijah. It is so easy to forget what God has done for us. We are a generation without a history. We have no sense of history, no sense of who we really are and who God is in our lives and who God has been in our family and in our church individually and collectively. So it seems were the people of ancient Israel. Have they forgotten the God who brought them up from Egypt, who freed them from Pharaoh's slavery? Have they forgotten the God that provides for them in the wilderness, bringing the manna and the quail? Have they forgotten all of the wondrous acts of Yahweh? Elijah might be accused of a lot of things. I think you'd like him as a preacher. There's no verbosity here. He just says it. Look at chapter 17, verse 1. Now, Elijah the Tishbite, without any warning, here he comes. Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the settlers of Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, is before whom I stand, surely there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. No rain, not even any dew, Elijah says to Ahab. Why drought? Because Baal was the god of fertility, the god of the storm, both present in the dew and the rain. By declaring a drought, Elijah is saying, Yahweh will put a halt to the power of Baal. Now, Elijah had to hide. Could you imagine during these years of drought that if he were hanging around, how many times someone would beg him to make it rain? How many times someone would say, you need to break the curse. You need to cause the storm. My crops are dying. Well, my, my cattle are shriveling. Can you imagine how many times Ahab would have sent messengers to Elijah? And so he hides. God sends him to the brook Kirith, east of the Jordan River. And the dirty birds, the ravens, are unclean animals. They come twice a day, bringing bread and meat in the morning 
And it's the same menu in the evening. There are not a lot of choices here. They're coming with bread and meat in the morning and the evening. But eventually, even the brook Kirith dried up. And Elijah had no drink, and God sends him a hundred miles north to Zarephath. He was there sustained by a poor widow who shared her meager rations with him. You remember the story. He meets the lady and says, could you bring me something to drink? Remember, water is scarce. There's a drought for years. Could you bring me a drink? And as a woman goes, he says, yes, I'd like some bread too. And the woman turns and says, I don't have any bread. I've got a little bit of flour and a little bit of oil. I'm going to bake the last and my son and I are going to eat it and then we're going to die. I I can't bring you any bread. I don't have any. Just a little flour and a little oil. And Elijah says, I'll tell you what, if you'll bring me, if you'll make the bread and make me a little cake first, then I promise you until it it rains again, the oil and the flour, well, they they will never dry up. They will be unceasing supply. And the woman is obedient. She makes first the prophet a little cake of bread, and therefore her oil remains. Her flour bin is never empty. Well, and then, then something terrible happens. You remember the story? Her son dies. And the woman wished, she says, I wish I'd never seen you, Elijah. I mean, the unceasing oil and flour, that was a good deal while it lasted. But if it cost me my son's life, you're a holy man. And I was living under God's radar. This, she had some bad theology. I was living under God's radar. And then you, the holy man, showed up. God started looking around my house. And he saw my sin. And he took my son. That's awful, Elijah. And God, you remember, takes the son from her and goes to the upper room. Lord, are you going to bring calamity upon this widow with whom I'm staying by causing her son to die? Lord, let life return. Lord, let life return. Three times. Lord, let life return. And the boy came to life again. And the widow said, now I know. Indeed, you are a prophet from God. Despite the severity of the drought in Samaria... Ahab didn't budge. You think with the cattle dying and all the problems the drought was bringing upon the crop and the harvest that Ahab would say, okay, let's start worshiping Yahweh. Baal is not working. But Ahab instead placed the blame not on his own disobedience and his worshiping the Baal. He placed the blame indeed back on Elijah. God gives Elijah the strangest command. Go to Ahab. Go to the king who is slaying all of my prophets. Yes, back in Samaria, Jezebel, as she is slaying all the prophets of Yahweh. And Obadiah, the second command of the land, has hidden a hundred prophets, 50 here, 50 there, in a cave. Well, look at 1817. It's time for the showdown. When Elijah showed up, Ahab says to him in verse 17, Is it you, the troublemaker of Israel? Is here the troublemaker? Is this the guy who's keeping us hungry? Is this the guy who's preventing the rain? Is this the one who's killing all of our cattle? Is it you, the troublemaker of Israel? Elijah said, I'm not the troublemaker. It's you and your father's house. You have not worshiped your God. The God of our fathers, you have not worshipped Yahweh, but you have bowed the knee to the bell. Elijah has a great idea. 
It's time for a showdown. It's time to find out who is really God. You get your prophets, 450 of them, and you meet me at Mount Carmel, and we'll build two altars. Well, you bring the wood, and you bring the beast, but don't bring the fire. We'll let God provide the fire. A choice has to be made. The people have to decide. Our central verse there is in verse 21. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people did not answer him a word. The people were hedging their beds. They were an either or kind of worshiper. They wanted to worship Baal in case Baal was the right God. They wanted to worship Yahweh a little bit if Yahweh was the right God. They were vacillating between the two. They were equivocating between Baal and Yahweh. You see, Elijah says to the people, it's either or. It's not both and. The prophet was saying to them and the prophet is saying to us this morning, you cannot worship both God and Baal. You must choose. If God is God, follow him. And if Baal is God, chase Baal. You must choose. If God is God, follow him. If sensuality is God, follow sensuality. You have to choose, says Elijah, if materialism is God, make all the money you can. But if God is God, worship him and be generous. You have to choose, says the prophet Elijah, if success is God, climb the ladder, whatever it takes to get to the top. But if not, submit in humility before Yahweh. If your self-seeking desires are God, then follow them to your heart's content. But if God is God, walk in his sacrificial path. It's hard to avoid duplicity, isn't it? There's a temptation always present in all of us. We want it both ways. We want God, but we also want Baal. We want human desires, but we also want God's desires. You remember the words of Jesus? No man can serve two masters. You have to pick one or the other. Elijah gave the challenge, no more duplicity. You have to make a choice. The crowd grew silent. Elijah held up a mirror, and the people saw that they were equivocating people. They had to choose one way or the other way. Baal or Yahweh, you cannot have it both ways. They were compatible to Dr. Seuss's Zode. Did I ever tell you about the Zode who came to two signs in the fork of the road? One said to place one and the other to place two. So the Zode had to make up his mind what to do. Well, said the Zode, as he scratched his head and his chin and his pants, and he said to himself, now I'll be taking a chance. If I go to place one, the place may be hot, and how will I know if I like it or not? On the other hand... I'll feel like such a fool if I go to place two and I find it's too cool. In that case, I may catch a chill and turn blue, so place one may be best and not place two. On the other hand, though, if place one is too high, I might catch a terrible earache and die. 
On the other hand, though, what might happen to me if I go to place two and find it's too low, I could get some terrible, strange pain in my toe. So place one may be best. So he started to go and he stopped and he said, on the other hand, other hand, other hand, other hand, for 36 hours and one half that zone made starts and stops in the middle of the road saying, don't take a chance, you may be right. And then he got an idea which was wonderfully bright. Play it safe, cried the zone. I'll play it safe, I'm no dunce. I'll simply start off to both places at once. That's how the Zod, who would not take a chance, got to no place at all with a split in his pants. <laughs> Ancient Israel was being a Zod. Baal, Yahweh, you have to choose. We have to choose. Loving this world, living according to the principles of this fallen world, are living according to the fruit of the Spirit, the transforming power of God. The RSV translates verse 21 this way. How long will you go on limping between two opinions? The Jerusalem Bible says it this way. How, how long do you mean to hobble first on one leg and then on the other? And the New English Bible says it the way from which we get our title. How long will you people sit on the fence? How long will you be a fence rider? Now the question, there looms large over the text, is how long can you sit on the fence? The crowd is following the bales of this world, sex, success, and self. How long can you sit on the fence? How long can you be divided, wrestling inside of yourself? How long can we live as a people of double-mindedness? Trying to live both ways will wear us down and wear us out. Remember what Jesus said? Blessed are those who are pure in heart. Meaning, blessed are those who have a single focus. Blessed are those who are about one thing, about my Father and whose will. We must end the duplicity then and now, if God is God, then go after him. If you've decided the world has the God, then go after the world. But don't try both ways. There's some here this morning in this great sanctuary, some watching by television or live stream this morning, you're a fence rider. You're sitting on the fence. You're hobbling on one leg and then the other. You want all the benefits that go along with being part of the people of faith, the people of God, and yet you want to worship the bell in your life, and you cannot serve two masters. You want to follow God, but you lack the courage to stand tall and go against the crowd. Like the ancient Israelites who lacked the courage to stand for Yahweh against Jezebel and her bell. At last, it's time for the contest. You go get your 450 prophets. We'll set up two altars. Get everything that's needed. You bring a bull for yourselves. You can provide my bull. And, well, you bring everything that's needed, the wood and the bull. You bring everything, but don't bring the fire. We'll see which God can provide the fire. That seemed fair enough. 
So they gathered early in the morning, and all the people were watching. And Elijah said to the 450 prophets of Baal, you guys get to go first. So they put the bull on the altar, the wood's there beneath, and they're praying for the bell to send the fire. And they danced, and they pranced, and they cut themselves as the liturgical practice would have it. They did everything necessary to call upon the bell, to get Baal's attention, to ignite the sacrificial altar wood. But nothing happened. Nine o'clock, nothing happened. Well, and here's Elijah over here looking at his watch. Ten o'clock, nothing happened. They're dancing, they're prancing. There's a frenzy of motion. There's all sorts of motion. Everything is in motion. The dancing, the prancing, the cutting the blood. Everything is in motion but the fire. There is no fire. Noontime. Now, Elijah sort of acts like the guy whose football team's up 41 to nothing at halftime. He's not really, a, a, he's not a gracious winner. He's, he knows he's going to win. He, he's not very gracious. I'll just call it like it is. In fact, here's what he says in the Hebrew text. Things like this. I think your God's out to lunch. Maybe he's, maybe he's out to lunch. And he actually says in 1827, I think your God's gone to the men's room. That's where I think he is. That's where I think he is. Now, your translators will never say that, but it's what it says. I think God, your God's gone to the men's room. You better shout louder. Maybe he can't hear you in there. It's, it keeps going, and he doesn't come. And, well, we'll give you a little more time. He just keeps on boasting and aggravating and belittling them, really setting it up. They take a little more time. And despite all the frenzy and all the slicing and the blood and the cutting and the dancing and the prancing, there is no fire. At 3 o'clock, Elijah says, you guys have had enough time. You can't make any fire. It's my turn. He takes the bull and puts it in the right place. He says, this is good. Now go get some water. And they douse the wood with the water. They build a trench around it, and they keep pouring the water on it. He wants them to get the idea that not only will his God bring the fire, his God will bring the fire even in the midst of the water. Puts his bull in the right place, builds a trench, and then... Elijah prays, God, that they may know, will you send the fire, and man, does God do it. Look at verse 36. O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, today let it be known that thou art God in Israel, and that I am thy servant, and that I have done all these things at thy word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and you has, have turned their heart back again. The fire comes down. There's no dancing. There's no prancing. There's a simple prayer. He's a preacher of few words. God send the fire that they'll know you're the God and I'm your prophet. They send, God sends a fire and it burns the bull. It lights the wood. It lit, licks up the water. It even burns the stones that are forming the trench. There is no more fence sitting in Israel. Look at verse 39. And the people shout, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And that's Elijah's name. Elijah's name means Yahweh. The Lord is God. They all get off the fence. 
Elijah has some of that victory, blood pumping in his veins. He begins to shout. You remember what Moses said to do to false prophets? False prophets got to go. They've been killing the prophets of God. And so, well, Elijah says, get rid of these 450 prophets of Baal. And not one of them escaped. They seize the prophets and destroy them. The Lord, Yahweh, he is God. I don't know what false god you're chasing this morning. Oh, it might not be as formal as the religion of the Baal, but it's, it's there. It's nonetheless real. The question that comes from the text from Elijah the prophet to the people of ancient Israel, the word that comes to Ahab and Jezebel and all who would follow is, how long will you hesitate between two opinions? How long will you be like the Zod at the fork of the road trying to go left and trying to go right? How long will you sit on the fence, Scripture says? What is in your life that makes you a fence sitter? Is it a relationship you can't give up? Any relationship you have that interrupts your relationship with God is a relationship that has to go. Is it a relationship that has you sitting on the fence? Is a materialistic selfishness that causes you to want more and more things and bigger and better toys so that tithing is not part of your worship? Are you worshiping material things? How long will you sit on the fence? Is a desire to be popular so much so that the crowd goes this way, you can't dare go the other way? When the Jezebels of this world call you to come and follow her or the Ahabs of this world call you to follow, are you afraid to go a different way. How long will you sit on the fence? Is an addiction in your life that is trying to rule and be your Lord versus the Lord Yahweh, who through Christ has set you free? You cannot follow God halfway. You cannot sit on the fence. The people shout, Yahweh, He's the God. He's the God. Some of you here this morning need to follow God for the very first time. Today, proclaim Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. He died for you and he rose again. And those of you this morning are letting the little bells in your life creep up. Maybe it's popularity. Maybe it's materialism. Maybe it's an addiction. Maybe it's a relationship. Whatever it is in your life that pulls you away from God and pulls you away from faithful obedience to God's word and gathering with God's people, it's become a bell in your life. Don't wait till it's too late. Elijah just comes right in the middle. We don't know his history and his future. He vanishes in thin air. But just as surely as he drops in the text in the middle of 1 Kings and interrupts the story by saying, it will not rain until I say so, you must stop going both ways. You must make a choice. This morning, Elijah drops into my life and into your life and says, no more fence riding, no more duplicity, no more equivocating. You must choose. If you're going to follow the other thing, follow it with all your heart. Hope it saves you, but it won't. But if you're going to follow Yahweh, it must be 100%. Let us pray. Oh, God, we come to you this morning. And we know that you're the only true God. 
You're the God who creates. You're the God who speaks. And all is created. You're the God who sustains and provides, not only for ancient Israel, but for us. You're the God who sends Christ to the cross to die for our sins that we can be forgiven. You're the God who causes the Christ to have an empty tomb. You're the God who's coming again for your people. God, we've been interrupted today by a prophet, a man of few words, but a clear message. Get off the fence. Get on God's team and do it today. Amen.